guilt. We all experience it. What do we do with it? One psychologist described guilt like having a snooze alarm in your head that won't shut off. Guilt can set up a pulpit in our conscience and preach to us. And while we can walk away from a pulpit, we can't walk away from our conscience. Feelings of guilt start very early, the experts tell us. A developmental psychologist at the University of Iowa notes that children typically start to feel guilty as early as two years of age. At least that's when we can tell they start to experience guilt. She writes that children respond with acute tension, negative emotions when they're tempted to misbehave or anticipate violating rules. And they can remember how awful they felt even in the past. So guilt, even the youngest, can experience guilt. So what do we do about that snooze alarm in our head that won't go off? The same psychologist who described that mentioned what he calls the Dobby effect. That guilt can make us self-punish, he writes. The Dobby effect, a phenomenon named after the head-banging elf in the Harry Potter, refers to a psychological tendency for people to employ self-punishment to ward off feelings of guilt. What the author is saying is that we all try to atone for our guilt. Sometimes it's through self-punishment. Or maybe we work harder or we work longer. Maybe we give more. Maybe the term we learned a bit ago, maybe we love bomb, even God. Or maybe it's against self-punishment like Martin Luther, the monk, did in the monastery. But how does it work out when we try to atone for our guilt? Think of the tortured Lady Macbeth trying to wash the invisible blood guilt from her hands. Out, damn spot. Out, I say. No matter how hard we try, nothing seems to work. And the gnawing agony of guilt shows up in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. The main character, Roskolnikov, is very poor, and he murders an old pawnbroker lady, and then he must eliminate her sister too because she witnessed the scene. And Roskolnikov planned to use the stolen goods and money for noble deeds. So his noble deeds and reasons... But pushing back against the injustice liberated him to commit these crimes and embolden him. But instead of experiencing liberation, afterwards mental anguish pressed around him like cold, wet clothes. And instead of living happily ever after, he woke up in a horror film that was his own mind. And while Roshkonikov's crimes come very early in the book, his formal punishment doesn't come into the near end of this 430-page book. But in between the crime and the punishment, the beginning and the end, comes the long mental anguish of Roshkonikov in the middle. What's happening? Well, it seems that Dostoevsky wants to show us that the real punishment for crimes is a tortured, anguished conscience racked from unconfessed guilt or guilt so great that it can't be atoned for. The point of crime and punishment doesn't lie with the actual repercussions of the murder, but with the way Roshkonoklov has to deal with the tormenting guilt his entire life as it eats away at him. And today we come face to face with a universal need for a universal experience, atonement in the face of guilt. Would you please locate 2 Samuel 24, first half of the Christian Bible, 2 Samuel 
24, the last chapter of this book of 1 and 2 Samuel. These final four chapters arranged so well are recapturing important themes in the story. It's like sitting through a film and then as you finish off your popcorn or you crunch up the, 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 the popcorn container, the ending credits roll and all the major soundtrack, soundtrack melodies reprise for a final time. That's what's happening as this final four chapters come to an end. Important melodic themes that have been playing throughout the book play for a final time so that we exit the theater of Second Samuel humming the most important themes. Well, the last few weeks, we spent our time in the inner two chapters, which show us David flanked by his mighty men. But if you look at these two outer chapters, 21 and 24, they not only frame David and his mighty men, but they also show us a need. The outer chapters show us a need, not only for Israel, but for all humanity. What is that need? The structure itself is telling us. Well, I know you're in 2 Samuel 24, but just flip back to 2 Samuel 21. And I want you to notice how the epilogue opens and it confronts us with the need. What is the need we're confronted with? And 2 Samuel 21, verse 1, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and here's what he discovered. And the Lord said, There's blood guilt on Saul and his house. So chapter 1 opens with the Lord angry with Israel because of a broken oath. Now, what's the need? Look down at verse 3. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement? The epilogue begins in chapter 21 with a good God rightly angered against Israel's injustice, leaving them with a glaring need for atonement. Now, how do you suppose chapter 24 opens as the epilogue closes. We'll now go back to 2 Samuel 24. Remember the two outer chapters, 21 and 24? They mirror each other. And just as 21 opens with God rightly angered at Israel's injustice and the need for atonement, let's notice how the epilogue opens, uh, closes in 24. 24.1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So, The epilogue opens and now it closes with the Lord angry against Israel for sin. And what's the need again in 2 Samuel 24? The same one in chapter 21. Look down at verse 10 of 24. Here's the need and the light of the Lord's anger against their sin. I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity. Both chapters open with God's appropriate anger and move towards atonement. Now, what's the point? Well, friends, as as the story of 1 and 2 Samuel ends, as King David, in a sense, is going to take off his crown and lay his scepter down and walk off the stage as the curtain comes down, the divine author wants you to see as a reader what Israel needed then and what every one of us need here today. We need somebody to make an atonement for our guilt. And while we've not murdered, probably like Rashkonikov, we've all self-justified our wrongs in some way that seemed rational and made us deserving of committing the sin at the time. But now comes the guilt, like a snooze alarm that won't stop going off. What a universal need now comes 
for a universal experience as the curtain goes down on 2 Samuel 2. The first and final chapters are centered on this, a good God rightly angered against sin, leaving people like you and me with a glaring need for atonement. And if we're listening, if you are listening, and the point is, this is coming at the end of the book to tell you, if you are listening through the entire story of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, if you are listening, here's a song playing at the end of the book, a six-note melody that's been playing through the entire story of Samuel, and it sounded like this. What can wash away my sin? That's the note that's been playing in the whole book. And now the author wants you to know, I want you to hear that for a final time. So with guilt and the need of atonement before us, I want to lay out the storyboard of this chapter in four acts. Act one, the sovereignty of the sovereign. Act two, the sin of the census. Act three, the confession of the king. And at 10.30 p.m. last night, I decided to save Act 4 for communion next week. But here's Act 4, the propitiation of the plague. The sovereignty of the sovereign, the sin of the census, the confession of the king, and the propitiation of the plague. Let's look first at Act 1, Scene 1, Verse 1. We go behind the scenes. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel And he incited David against Israel, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. This is God's word. Now that opening can give us a mental charley horse. How can God be behind this in some way? But now listen for a moment. If there are mysteries in our finite universe that we're still trying to grapple with, then do you expect there to be no mysteries with an infinite God? If we're constantly surprised about mysteries and things we cannot fully account for in our finite world and in our finite bodies like this, why am I still coughing? Why can't I sleep? If no doctor can tell you why that's happening in your finite body, might there be things we can account for in an infinite God that are equally mysterious? Now, I know that line of thinking doesn't solve everything, but it just puts the question we wrestle with in perspective because Job says that when you and I deal with God and we interact with all that he's revealed, we're still only grasping the outer rim of his ways. We're only hearing a small portion of him, Job twenty-six fourteen. If there's anything we need to recall as the book of Samuel ends, it's the sheer unassailable sovereignty of God from causing a barren woman to conceive to raising up David from the pasture to the palace and then preserving him from the mad machinations of King Saul, his father-in-law, so that you would remember promotion doesn't come from the east or the west, but it's God who sets up one and takes down another. Psalm 75, 6. This is the sovereignty of the sovereign. Remember the recent explanation of the power behind David's mighty men in 2 Samuel 23. What was it? The Lord brought about a great victory. 23.10, 23.12. The whole point of Samuel indeed is heard and the last note of David's song at the end of chapter 22. Great salvation he brings to his king. That's the story of Samuel. Yes, 
As the opening verses of the final chapter show us for a final time, we're seeing the unassailable sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God now that encompasses even the sinful actions of men and the actions of Satan himself so that you would remember in life and in this story, nothing lies outside of the scope and sequence of God's sovereign control. Here's what I mean. We're told as this as the curtain goes up here that the Lord incited David to number the people. But beside 2 Samuel 24 run, you should write 1 Chronicles 21 Because in 1 Chronicles 21, it records the same event with different details. Here we're told the Lord incited David, but the chronicler says in chapter 21, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Well, what's happening? I had this discussion yesterday with my son, and he said it reminds me of the story of Job. That's right. Do you know that the word incite in chapter 24, verse 1, shows up in Job? The same word shows up. So in addition to writing 1 Chronicles 21 next to 2 Samuel 24, you should write Job chapter 2 because that same word is going to show up. Well, what happens when the story of Job opens? Satan is responding to a challenge from God about a righteous man named Job. And in chapter 1, verse 6, we read, There was a day when the sons of God presented themselves before the Lord, and Satan himself was among them. And in the end, Satan asks God for permission to afflict Job. Even there we see the sovereignty of the sovereign. Because Satan and God are not like two equal but opposite cosmic energy forces, the yin and the yang, the feng shui, so that you can set up the dynamic harmony in the world. No, God is unassailably sovereign even over Satan. How do you know? Satan has to ask God's permission to act. This is the sovereignty of the sovereign. But after Satan goes out of God's presence with God's permission to afflict Job and kill some of his children, Job offers his own evaluation when scene one ends. And what does Job say? The Lord has given and the Lord has taken. He did not say Satan has given and Satan has taken. He says the Lord gave and the Lord take. Was Job right? Did he not know what was going on behind the scene? And you know Job is right because the very next verse tells you this. And all of this, Job did not sin with his mouth. Thus, Satan did the affliction, yet the Lord stood behind it. That happens again for another round in Job chapter 2. And this time, the Lord uses the word from our text in 2 Samuel 24. The Lord said to Satan, Job 2, Have you considered my servant Job that he still holds fast to his integrity, although you, here's our word, you incited me. So when you put Job and 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles together, you get something like this. As in Job, God is apparently using Satan once again in 2 Samuel 24 to test David and bring judgment on his people. In the same way, Satan afflicted Job, but Job says it's the Lord who took away. Now here, while Satan incites David, the narrator tells you what's really going on behind the scenes. The ultimate source of this scene is the Lord. And what's the point? That God employs Satan as his instrument to do his will. Nothing, not even the evil plans of Satan, lie outside of the purposes of God. This is the sovereignty of the sovereign. In the same act, in the same act can be two purposes. God's purpose, which is always ultimate and decisive. That's the interplay of 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. That's what happens in Genesis 50. Think about that for a moment. 
that in the same act, you have two purposes, but God's purpose is always ultimate and decisive. So Joseph, Joseph suffers from lifelong compound trauma. Compound trauma from from the trauma of kidnapping from the hands of jealous brothers. Uh, Now add to that the horrors of physical enslavement by greedy captors. Now compound kidnapping and enslavement with a multi-year imprisonment from a false rape accusation from a scorned woman. All of those compound trauma at the end of Joseph's life. And he didn't get through it easily. But when he gets to the end of his life and he's had a long time to process it, he didn't come to this conclusion in an hour or 10 minutes. It took his whole life to get this as a conclusion. And he looks back and he says, in the same deed, two things were happening. What you meant for evil, God was intending for good, which means in the same action, what men and Satan mean for evil in the same action, God is intending for good. And beloved, now listen, That's what happens at the cross. Peter tells us in Acts 2 that Jesus, on the one hand, was crucified by the hands of wicked men. But at the same time, they did that according to the definite plan of God. Indeed, for Herod and Pontius Pilate, Acts 4, along with the Gentiles and all the people of Israel, they did whatever Your hand had predetermined to take place. Acts 2 and Act 4. Thus, as chapter 24 opens, I just want us to see the sovereignty of the sovereign, that nothing is lying outside of the the power of God. And when the chapter ends, when the chapter ends, God is going to use the sin of his people to provide the atonement that his people need. That's what's really happening in this chapter. God is about to use the sin of his people to provide a place for the atonement for his people. And he's going to use Satan to make it happen. Don't miss that in this chapter. As we move forward, we might misread the chapter. You can open the chapter. We might misread it. David is about to number the people. And later, David's going to see that as sin. But as chapter 24 opens, beloved, David has not yet numbered the people. So what does that mean about the Lord's anger? It means that God is not angry with David for taking a census as the chapter opens because he hasn't taken the census yet. See the order? God's anger against Israel for their sin comes before David numbering the people. So what sin is God angry for Israel as the chapter opens? We had this discussion at dinner time, and my daughter says, all of them. The short answer is the text doesn't say, but her answer is exactly right. I mean, pick one. Go back and read 1 and 2 Samuel. Which of the sins of Israel should God not be angry with? I mean, just pick the recent ones. The rebellion of Absalom and Sheba that caused a civil war in Israel. You see, the surprise, friends, of 2 Samuel 24, when it tells us that God is angry, the surprise is not that he's angry, but we get to see God's posture towards his people's sin throughout the whole story. You mean he's always been angry. He's not been asleep. He's been angry against sin. So as the chapter opened now, God now is inciting David. And he's responding to previous sins. They don't arise from nowhere. God is not bored and wanting to start a fracas. So he gets this thing going. No, as the chapter opens, he's responding to Israel's previous sins. Here's how Don Carson puts it in his devotional for November 25th. 
it's important that we recall, even within the framework of 2 Samuel 24, that God is not arbitrarily or whimsically tempting David to do evil and then rather viciously clobbering him for it. Rather, whatever God is sanctioning is portrayed as God's response to previous sin. God's anger burned against Isbel, and now we are told something else is going to take place. And what's about to happen? The sovereign God, this is the profound and beautiful mystery. God's anger against an unspecified sin in Israel is about to lead to him making atonement for all Israel and all the world. That's what's about to happen. God's about to use the sin of his people to provide a place, a permanent place. Because when this chapter ends, when this chapter ends, David makes a sacrifice and he buys a plot of land from which God is going to build the temple. The same spot in which Abraham offered up his son Isaac. But God said, don't do it. Here's the temple. God is making a place to atone for his people's sin through their sin. What a great, big, mysterious, beautiful, sovereign God. That's what's happening in this chapter. He's not interested in dealing with one sin. He wants to provide a final place to deal with sin. Don't miss it. This is a sovereign God providing a final place to meet with his people. Well, with all that, God taking the initiative, he's taking the initiative against the sins of his people to provide a place of atonement. Let's now look at act two. The sovereignty of the sovereign, verse one, gives way to the sin of the census, verse two through the beginning of verse 10. This is what scripture says. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south, and number the people that I might know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king shall see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And now we have the route they took. And it's going to last nine months. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aroar and from the city that's in the middle of the valley toward Gad on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan. And from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. The men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered This is God's word. Now, what is crystal clear from this section is David's self-evaluation of his actions. As Joab is carrying out the census, David's heart struck him, verse 10, for numbering the people. And it's not as if David didn't have any warning because Joab cautioned the king from doing that in verse 3. Why are you delighting in doing this thing? Now, David has nobody to blame for himself. 
And he takes full responsibility, though it takes nine months for him to realize it. And he says twice, I have sinned greatly. Friends, that's when you know that you or someone that you love is truly repenting. They're no longer making excuses for how they've been misunderstood. Or if you only knew how hard life was, then you would understand. David shows us that true repentance takes full responsibility. Let me make an application here. We can make a lot of applications how we often shift responsibility. There is a current and growing trend for people to say that they're not coming to church or not staying in a marriage because they need a mental health break or the like. Now, I'm not downplaying the talk of legitimate mental health rightly defined. I've been clinically depressed twice in pastoral ministry, rushed to the hospital on an ambulance on a Saturday night because the paramedic showed up after my son dialed 911 and said, you need to come with us. You should be having a stroke right now. And later came the ambiguous, helpful diagnosis the patient suffers from vocational stress. So I'm not downplaying legitimate mental health rightly defined, but I'm cautioning that our culture has never talked more about mental health and left people more mentally unhealthy at the same time. And even where our diagnoses may be correct, many secular solutions entirely divorced from the Bible or sidelining it are not delivering what they promise. And then when you add that due to our expressive individualism and the sovereignty of personal lived experience and emotions over everything else so that our feelings are inerrant guides to truth, leaving us as the unquestioned authority on ourselves, culture has so fixated and obsessed on mental health to the extent that we absolve people of legitimate responsibilities and then call them brave while we do so. We, when we disobey God's clear commands meant for his glory and our flourishing, when we disobey commands like gathering for worship on Sunday or respecting your husband or loving your wife and disobeying those wise and loving commands, we make whatever mental health matters we have worse. Sin never makes anything better. It never works out better for anyone. What we do know is this, that God made you and he made me. And he loves us so much that he made our bodies and our souls to be refreshed on the Lord's day. David and his mighty men endured more legitimate trauma in battle and running from Saul than most of us. And he never uses any of that as an excuse for why he did one thing wrong. So I'm telling you, we could take a lot of things for your own mental health. Don't make matters worse by disobeying. Sow seeds of faith in the darkness. Trust and obey the Lord and love him with all your mind. And don't forget what Psalm 19.7 says, written by the one who made you. The law of the Lord is perfect and it restores the soul. And Asaph, who's deep in mental anguish in Psalm 73, he looks around and hears his mental state. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. My life is full of wearisomeness. But then I went to the house of God. From David's words here, we know someone else is repenting when we no longer make excuses but accept responsibility David, it takes nine months, of course. It can take time. Yes, yes, yes. But he finally owns it. And he says, oh, my goodness, I have sinned greatly. 
And notice, beloved, that while God stands completely sovereign in this chapter, David is nonetheless completely responsible for his actions. God's sovereignty in the Bible never functions in such a way that it mitigates human responsibility. Unlike Adam did in the garden, David at this point is exemplary in his repentance because he's not blaming God. He's not blaming the experiences of war. Nor should he be, nor can we. David is a great sinner. But have you noticed this about David as the story ends? Have you noticed here's another reason why God raised up somebody like David? Because he's a great repenter. He's such a great repenter that you can read his repentance in the Bible. We're reading of it here. David's sins ought never to be copied, but David's repentances should always be copied. I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Let me make a final point. Friends, when you and I sin, we must take personal responsibility as David does. And if we're good friends and fellow church members, we can't let one another shift responsibility by using potentially emotionally manipulative ways for responsibility that's ours. If someone is not at church on a regular basis, it's not finally because somebody overlooked them or the church failed them. If you get drunk, it's not finally because you're stressed out at work. When you and I sin, self-pity is no excuse. It's a way to atone for what you can atone for. It won't make you feel better. Here's the sin of the census. But can I mention another matter before moving to the confession of the king? If we say, because here's what we want to do. What was the sin that made God angry? The text doesn't tell us. What was so sinful about the census? Well, here's the short answer. We don't know. So don't spend small group 30 minutes talking about, well, here's what I think happened. We don't know what happened. The clear point is that David sinned and Joab knew he sinned. And in the end, David knew it because he confesses twice in 10 and 17. The text doesn't say clearly. Now, let me just violate what I said for a moment to, ter- to tell you how the story works. What makes the precise nature of David's sin difficult to determine is that in Numbers and Ezra and Nehemiah, God commands people to take a census. So David's action in taking a census isn't intrinsically sinful. Otherwise, God would have never commanded it in other places. What might be the case is not David's actions per se, but his motivations more precisely. Because in Numbers, God commands the census to act like a redemptive roll call. Oh, it's a beautiful moment. God wants to number all the people he's redeemed out of Egypt who are about to head in the promised land. The census of way, census was God's way of gloriously saying, I'm not leaving anybody behind. Count them all. They're all mine. They're all coming with me. It's a beautiful redemptive roll call of what I've just done. Likewise, in Ezra and Nehemiah, they take a census to make sure all of those coming out of this second exile, you all belong here. It's a beautiful redemptive moment. But here in 2 Samuel 24, God neither gives a command nor are those motives in play. So perhaps, perhaps, perhaps David is taking the census here and is doing so betrays a reliance on human numbers and figures because several times the repeated word is number, 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 number. It might be, it might be, it might be that David was forgetting one of the words from a song that he wrote. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God, Psalm 27. Maybe David forgot the words to his own song. Now, I don't know, you don't know, but here's what narrative does to you. We don't have access to David's David's motives as the divine author doesn't give it. But guess whose motives we do have access to? Yours and mine. You see what the story does? The story invites you in. 
Uh-uh. Let the story probe and poke at you and work on you. You don't have access to why David sinned, but you know what's going on with behind your sin. Let the story probe at you. Let it work at you. That's what the narrative is doing. It's inviting you in to see where am I in the story? Are we relying on something more than God? Do our actions reveal, do our actions or our reactions reveal that something or someone you're trusting in that more than God? Or think of this, think of this. Joab warned David about his sin. David, whatever it was, Joab knew what it was. David knew what it was. And David blew right by him. So learn from this scene in David and Job. You ready? Is there a, is there a, is there a friend? Is there a parent? Is there a fellow church member in your life right now probing you about an apparent pattern in your life? That job, the wisdom of that action, or the like. It doesn't finally matter if that's a good friend of yours or they use the right tone that we always want to make sure that we do. Know that it even know that it doesn't even matter if that person has been your best friend. It's not who is right, but what is right. And Joab certainly has had a stormy relationship with David. Joab, writes Don Carson, is always portrayed as a considerable military leader, but not as a particularly spiritual or even moral man. But here he stands up to the king with godly advice that he's not listened to. Godly counsel may come from a variety of sources. Doubtless, we must listen to them all, even if it comes from someone we don't like. The sovereignty of the sovereign, the sin of the census, and now the confession of the king. Let's continue to read verse 10 through verse 17. David's heart struck him after he'd numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Now the confession, but now, O Lord, Please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to your land? Or would you like to flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not, do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. But when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented. He relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I've done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. This is the word of the Lord. David not only takes full responsibility for his sin, but he goes to the one person he knows who can do anything about it. Take away my iniquity. David knows the only thing he can do with the sin is confess it. Friends, he doesn't try to work it off. He doesn't try to pray it off. He doesn't try to sleep it off. He doesn't try to drink it off. 
He doesn't try to drug it off. He doesn't try to laugh it off. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't explain it away. But David the king shows all of us the one thing you can always do about any sin. He repents. Satan will tell you that your sin is not worth repenting of or that it's too hard for you to repent. When you're young, Satan will tell you you have time. When you're old, he'll tell you it's too late. But behold, beloved, today is the day of salvation. David the king had more face to lose than any of us. But he shows us there's always something we can do with our sin. We can confess it. This is the confession of the king. And he asks God to do something with his guilt. Please take away my iniquity. Friends, our sins are so great that only God can do something about them. You you remember the song that we sing sometimes? No list of things that I have done. No list of virtues that I pursue. No list of those that I'm not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner through and through. My only hope is righteousness is not in me, but only you. And while David is praying for atonement, did you notice while David prays for it, God is providing for it. The very next morning, God sends a prophet named Gad and direct answer to his prayer. In the morning, God sends his word. Now, the confession of the king not only shows us what to do with our sin, but can I tell you this? It shows us the heart of the king. Because David offers to lay down his life as a shepherd king for his people. You heard that in verse 17, didn't you? He sees the destruction happening and then he says, God, 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 please, please. Why are you punishing them? Put me to death. Judge me and my family, not these dear people. So for a final time in the book of Samuel, we see a stark contrast between Saul and his sin and 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel 21 and David and his sin. What's the contrast? Well, when Saul sinned, he's the kind of king who blamed the people. And then he never repented, even when Samuel spoke to Saul with the medium at midnight. But what a different shepherd king Dave is. This is, this is a king who, who God has chosen after his own heart. Whereas Saul sinned and blamed the people, when David sins here, he's offered to be punished in the place of people. He's the shepherd king who wants to give his life and the place of his people. Please let your hand be against me, not them. Now, now wait a minute. Doesn't that prayer remind you of another shepherd king to come? You heard the whole book. David's not just a historical figure. He's a prophetic indicator of somebody to come. There's another king better than Saul or David because David is a king who betrayed his men like Uriah. But now here's Jesus, the son of David, is a king who gave his life in the place of betrayers like David. And while Saul blamed the people and David offered to die for the people, what Saul did not do and David wanted to do, Jesus Christ actually did. And it was written of him. He was numbered with the transgressors and he has borne the sins of many. Thus, the confession of the king not only shows us what to do with our sin, it shows us the heart of the king, the heart of Jesus Christ, the final king. But above all this, it shows us The mercy of God. The confession of the king shows us the mercy of God. God gives David three options. I don't know what you would have picked. Sin confessed and forgiven may still have some consequences. What are David's options? He can choose famine. He can face another war or he can face a plague for three days. And of the three, David chooses a three-day plague and pestilence. Why? Well, one explanation from the rabbis is interesting. A rabbinic explanation says 
puts David like this. If I choose famine, the people will say that I chose something that will affect them and not me because I will be well supplied as the king. If I choose war, they will say the king will be well protected. So let me choose pestilence before which all are equal. Now, however intriguing that explanation for David's choice may be, my argument to you is that locates the praise for David's choice in the wrong place. David does not make the choice to suffer pestilence because he's so noble. He makes the choice because he knows God to be so merciful. That's what it says. The confession of the king reveals to us the depth of God's mercy. Look again at verse 14. I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord because I'm a noble king. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. And David is more afraid to fall in the hands of men than God. David knows God's heart better than so many. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God with sins unconfessed. David knows it's a comforting thing to fall into the hands of a merciful God. While this option is the most lethal, three years versus three days, he was falling into the hands of a lethal God, but it's the only option David knows that has any hope. Our society is one in which our sense, our sense of justice as a society is so finely tuned that we've created a category for injustice called microaggressions. We are experts at taking offense, waiting for somebody to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, and then we punish people online or in the office. As one former writer of the New York Times pointed out in one of her final editorials, we have such a fine-tuned sense of justice with our desire to cancel people at a moment's notice, I fear we're losing the ability to forgive and show mercy. But David knows that God is unlike our American culture. David knows that God is unlike any earthly father you had who you could never please or who could never be appeased. David knows that it's safer to fall in the hands of God with your sin than into man's hands with your sin. Because because while God's justice is greater than ours, so is his mercy. His mercy is deeper than the grave. It's wider than the Mariana Trench. It's higher than Mount Everest. And as John Newton put it in a letter to his friends, you say it with me, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. You see, David had experienced God's mercy before. He had looked into the dark depths of his sin before, but he'd seen at the bottom of the depths of his sin, amazingly, the bright mercy of God shining back up at him. After his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, his soul shook as he heard the merciful words of an undeserving pardon. The Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. David says, it's safer for me to come to God with my sin than to fall into anybody else's hands for my sin because I know what Moses said about God is true. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful slow to anger, but abounding in steadfast love. So David throws himself into the hands of a lethal but merciful God. So the confession of the king reveals to us the depth of God's mercy. And David's hope is not in vain. 
because of the angel of the Lord marches through the land with a sword of pestilence that kills 70,000 men, something dramatic happens as the angel approaches the heart of God's people. He's at the threshing floor of Aruna, which is outside the city, and it's high and it's looking over the city. And as this angel of death with the sword of judgment in his hand stands over the city with the sword drawn at the moment, at the place of God's greatest wrath, his compassion wells up inside of him. God's greatest compassion swells within him at the moment of his greatest wrath when the holy city, the place of his presence, was about to be wiped out. Here's the picture. The angel's sword is drawn. It's poised, ready to destroy Jerusalem. And God cries out at that very moment, enough. God's heart then thundered at the angel, stay your hand, put up your sword. The hand of God was indeed more merciful than the hand of men. Jonathan Edwards was right. We take nothing from him. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But friends, to fall into the hands of a living God is the only hope you have for mercy. To fall into the hands of a living God is to fall in the hands of a merciful God. So don't hide your sins. Run to the one who will by no means clear the guilty but who abounds in steadfast love and mercy. I'm just telling you that the confession of this king is not showing you David's nobility. It's showing you God's mercy. How fall into God's hands and over every part of David's life, over every part of David's life now in Samuel, over the all experiences of my people, you know what? Here are the words, but I received mercy. What'd you say, David? What'd you say, Israel? You heard me. You heard our king right. Here is our life testimony. This saying is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance that I'm the chief of sinners, but I received mercy. Now listen, I'm saving the last few verses for next week in the Lord's Supper. I hope you see where this is going in some way. I'm, ah, I wish I could get there. I should, but I made the decision for next week. Right? But you know, don't, your heart's surging there, isn't it? Because the chapter ends with God not only providing atonement, but a permanent place of atonement. Because on this very site, Solomon's going to build a temple, the place of God's presence and atonement. And where does that temple go? Oh, I lift my eyes to Calvary. There it is. Where else do you see the sovereignty of the sovereign God? Where else do you see a king taking responsibility for sin to such an extent that he's willing to be punished in the place of sinners? Where else do you see the place of God's greatest wrath giving place to the way of his greatest mercy? Where does his heart swell the most for sinners? Oh, the scene of the king previews the scene of the son of David. God's anger at sin leads him to put forth his son as a sacrifice for sin. And in the middle, God could say enough at the cross because Jesus yelled, it's finished from the cross. Don't look at David. Look through him until you see the Son of God hanging from the cross, laying down his life for all who would trust in him. Because at the cross, all those who put their trust in him are sinners falling into the hands of a merciful God. The vilest defender. I remember memorizing the words of that song in 10th grade with my afflicted conscience in Fort Hood, Texas. And I read, you mean the vilest defender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives? 
You mean the dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his last dying day? And there may I, the while as he, wash all my sins away? The epilogue of the final chapter opens with this haunting question because it's been a question throughout the story. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thus, our sins are many, but his mercy is 